the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Georgine Rice Show on this Monday afternoon. We spent a week last week. Uh, in session for a production week, just sitting down the hall, but not coming into the studio. So we're glad to be back live in studio today. James Blend is engineering and producing today's program, and we're glad to have you with us. Today we're going to be talking with uh, Bruce Riley Ashford. He is the author of Letters to an American Christian. He's also a provost, professor, and and a number of other things. We'll talk with him in the 5 o'clock hour about his letter, his book rather, titled Letters to an American Christian, in which he takes on whether or not and how Christians ought to approach politics. And this is from a biblical perspective. So we're looking forward to talking with Bruce Riley Ashford when he joins us at the top of the five o'clock hour. Well, of course, everyone is on tenderhooks waiting to hear from the president as he is expected to announce later this evening at about six o'clock p.m. our time, his next pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. This would make his second. And that, uh, as is always the case, um, would uh, help reshape uh, the direction of the court for years to come. Now, we make those kinds of statements at the time a president makes a nomination, but you can never predict what kind of jurists these men and women are ultimately going to be. Uh, it doesn't matter if it was Nixon or Reagan or Bush or Clinton. Uh, you can't always um, determine whether or not they're going to be true to their expected bona fides when it comes to uh, sitting on the U.S. Supreme Court. But nonetheless, uh, we do know from the t- list of 25 that had been whittled down to four that the president intends to focus on a more conservative or constitutional um, uh, originalist uh, perspective on the part of the judges. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. And again, the president is expected to make an announcement before the day ends. Also, two of those um, potential jurists uh, are in Washington, D.C. One sits on the circuit in that area, so is literally living in that area. Another is in town for a judicial conference. So a lot of speculation as to the proximity of these two individuals to the announcement that will be made uh, shortly. Taking a look at some of the uh, developing news stories, a group tied to Hillary Clinton and other advocacy organizations have launched a multi-million dollar campaign to pressure GOP lawmakers into opposing the president's pick for the Supreme Court uh, before his expected announcement today. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo was in North Korea over the weekend when a follow-up trip to last month's historic summit between President Trump and Kim Jong-un. Um, not too promising. We'll talk more about that. And the president's tariffs on $34 billion in Chinese products went into effect early on Friday morning. The president indicated he's ready to further escalate trade war between the United States and China if necessary. Well, as I mentioned, a Supreme Court uh, battle has uh, or will soon begin. The president hasn't even announced his Supreme Court nominee and already advocacy groups opposing him are pumping millions into campaigns, pressuring Republican lawmakers into opposing his pick. One group at the forefront of these efforts, Demand Justice, has launched what is reported to be a $5 million campaign targeting two moderate GOP senators, Susan Collins of Maine and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska. Demand Justice is led by the former press secretary, 
secretary for Hillary Clinton's presidential campaign, Brian Fallon, and is one of several groups launching an aggressive push to sway moderate senators of both parties to oppose the eventual nominee. Of course, we don't know who that is yet. The Washington Post reported the group's ads were set to start airing on Thursday in Murkowski and Collins' home states. They focus on the possibility that Trump's pick to replace retiring Justice Anthony Kennedy could help the court overturn Roe versus Wade, among other major decisions. It was reported on Thursday that Trump had completed his interviews on Supreme Court candidates after speaking to six judges, Brett Kavanaugh, Raymond Kethledge, Amy Coney Barrett, Amul Thapor, Joan Larson, and Thomas Hardiman. Uh, Thapor and uh, uh, Larson are apparently out of that running, but he did meet with them last week. He's said to be focusing on Kavanaugh, Kethledge, and Barrett, and is expected to announce that decision later this evening. In other news, the president uploaded uh, on, uh, well, I'm not even going to get into that. That's not worth uh, re- repeating. Post-summit goals with the North Koreans, the Secretary of State uh, Pompeo arrived in North Korea on Friday in his first trip to the region since the historic meeting on the 12th and the nuclear summit in Singapore. His visit in Pyongyang is his third since April. His uh, high-stakes objective, which analyst Harry Kazianis uh, called the mission impossible, is to help convert the uh, regime's pos- uh, promises of denuclearization into concrete action that would eliminate the threat posed by Kim Jong-un's nuclear arsenal. Since the summit, doubts over the secretive regime's intention has grown again, and certainly statements that have since been made confirm that. Reports it was continuing to expand facilities related to its nuclear and missile programs and that U.S. intelligence was skeptical about its intentions to give up its weapons. However, the Secretary of State said on Friday he expected the North Koreans to approach future negotiations in good faith. Well, was that the outcome? More on that a bit later. And on the brink of an all-out trade war, when the clock struck midnight on Friday morning, U.S. tariffs on $34 billion in Chinese imports took effect. Beijing had vowed to respond immediately in kind, which it did. The two biggest economies are on a collision course for a full-blown trade war. Earlier on Friday, China's state media reportedly lashed out at the U.S. president, accusing the White House of behaving like a gang of hoodlums as the deadline approached. Trump has warned that the United States may ultimately target over $500 billion worth of China. Chinese goods, or roughly the total amount that the United States imported from China last year, according to Reuters. Also, the president is set to announce his uh, nominee for the Supreme Court in a primetime address today. On Sunday, he said that he was close to making that decision, and sources say four, uh, the four has been whittled down to one, but the president has changed his mind several times in the interim. Phase two of the effort to rescue a soccer team and coach trapped in a flooded Thailand cave are underway a day after eight of the boys uh, were pulled out to safety. And the president's trip to Europe this week with the NATO summit and a closely watched sit down with Vladimir Putin could test strained relationships with U.S. allies. And the U.S. embassy in Haiti has urged Americans to stay inside following two days of violent protests and looting over that government's attempt to raise fuel prices. Well, the president said Sunday that he uh, was close to making his decision. We'll make the announcement today. The administration has been preparing information materials on four potential nominees we've already mentioned. And so Sources uh, who talked to Trump on Sunday morning say that the president's uh, two uh, top choices, Kavanaugh and Hardiman, uh, are those two, though the GOP source uh, said late um, Sunday that Barrett still has a good chance of being picked. Hardiman was the uh, runner-up when Trump nominated Neil Gorsuch to replace the late uh, Justice Antonin Scalia last year. He also has a personal connection to the president, having served with Trump's sister on the third U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in Philadelphia, and she apparently drew the president's attention to uh, him as a potential pick. 
Also, um, the rescuers in Thailand on uh, Monday began their second, rather their third attempts to free the remaining boys and their uh, coach still trapped inside the cave, but warned that uh, heavy rains have soaked the area and they're uh, now in a race for time and water. Uh, Thai Navy SEALs said that they successfully retrieved uh, eight of the members of the youth soccer team out from the cave where they had been uh, trapped for more than two weeks. The boys who would... Uh, were removed, were uh, considered the weakest, uh, reports say. So that's a good sign that they're out, the stronger remain. It was originally reported that the strongest would be extracted first, but not the case. The same divers who took part in Sunday's rescue of four boys trapped in the flooded cave also conducted the next operation and will be involved in the final, uh, trying to extract the remaining three boys and the coach who is also still in the cave. Fifteen minutes after four o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a few moments and uh, also in the Five o'clock hour talk with Bruce Riley Ashford, author of Letters to an American Christian. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 19 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. By the way, we're going to be doing a giveaway this week, I should mention. We're going to be giving away family four packs of tickets to the Portland Pickles at Walker Stadium. That's in Portland's Lentz Park. It's good for any home game in the 2018 season. So we'll be giving away Portland Pickles uh, tickets, family four-pack. In fact, I think we'll do that in, the, uh, in this hour. So listen up for your opportunity. Well, President Trump's week-long trip to Europe is going to test already strained bonds with some of the United States' closest allies as he comes face-to-face with Russian President Vladimir Putin with a long, ongoing Russian collusion investigation still pending. The president departs on Tuesday on a four-nation tour. Two main issues will hover over his trip, disputes over trade and military spending with fellow Western democracies and speculation about whether he's going to rebuke or embrace the Russian leader. On this trip, after a meeting with NATO leaders in Brussels, he's going to travel to the UK, where his uh, widespread, or rather, where widespread protests are expected, before he heads to one of his Scottish golf resorts for the uh, weekend. He meets with Putin in Helsinki on the 16th in the finale of that trip. And the U.S. Embassy in the Haitian capital of Port-au-Prince told American citizens there to remain inside until further notice on Sunday. The city uh, continues to be gripped by violent protests. Looters uh, pillaged, burned, and vandalized shops in Haiti's capital Sunday following two days of violent uh, protests over the government's attempt to raise fuel prices. Do not travel to the airport unless you, your uh, a flight has been confirmed and is departing, the State Department cautioned. Flights are canceled today. That was Sunday, and the airport has uh, limited food and water available. An estimated 120 Americans are believed to be staying at the Port-au-Prince Hotel, targeted by protesters who attempted to bypass security and set the building on fire. Uh, youth groups and missionaries from an array of U.S. churches are also stranded in the Caribbean nation, unable to make it safely to the airport for departure. And I want to remember them all in prayer. And on this day in 1776, the Declaration of Independence is read aloud to General George Washington's troops in New York, having heard it for the very first time. Well, as we've been uh, discussing, the president told reporters aboard Air Force One last week that he has uh, narrowed his list of potential Supreme Court nominees to just two or three people. We now know that he's narrowed that to just one. He said at that time, I'm interviewing some extraordinary, talented and bright people, brilliant people. And I'm very happy that uh, we will pick somebody who will be outstanding for many years to come. Well, it was learned at the time that uh, the president completed the interview process after speaking with six judges. I've mentioned their names already. The interviews involved seven conversations in all, and the president talked to one candidate twice. Which one? 
well, we don't quite know. But among them is Thomas Hardiman. He has some blue-collar appeal. And as I mentioned, he's in Washington, D.C. for a judicial conference. And the fact that he's been seen riding around in a, a black vehicle, a limousine perhaps, some have speculated, well, this must be the guy. But he's not the only one on this very short list that is in Washington. Uh, Judge Thomas Hardiman uh, may be uh, more humble and have more humble personal roots than the other finalists, but his legal record is just as uh, strong. His supporters note that he was the first in his family to attend college. He drove a taxi to finance his law school education. The fact that he did not attend an Ivy League school, unlike every current member of the high court and the late Justice Antonin Scalia, may appeal to Trump's uh, slated populist sentiment. Uh, some commentators compare Hardiman favorably to Justice Samuel Alito in terms of personality and jurisprudence, uh, but uh, served on the Third Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals. The issue of the Massachusetts native has tackled included uh, gun rights in a 2016 ruling. Uh, he backed a decision that said nonviolent felons enjoyed the right to carry a weapon. Their crimes of conviction were nonviolent and that their personal circumstances are distinguishable from those of persons who do not enjoy Second Amendment rights because of their demonstrated uh, proclivity to violence, he said at the time. He also um, dissented in a court ruling upholding a New Jersey law that mandated potential gun owners show a justifiable need to carry a handgun in public. He said the constitutional right to keep and bear arms extends beyond the home or for self-protection. One more thing might appeal to Trump, respect for the separation of powers. I have no hesitation in applying a law regardless of what I might think about it, Hardiman said during his 2006 Senate confirmation. I think any good judge recognizes recognizes his or her place in our constitutional government, and that place is not to upset the will of the people as expressed uh, through their elected representatives. Also, Amy Comey uh, Barrett, uh, faith and family might be the two hallmarks um, of her potential nomination, although James assured me that a reliable source indicated that she has been spotted near her home um, just um, moments ago, so it's not likely she's the pick. Um, She's not likely to be the pick if, uh, in fact, Uh, The presence of that individual is necessary. Senator Dianne Feinstein of uh, California told her bluntly during her early confirmation hearing, the dogma of her Catholic faith lives loudly within you. And that's of concern that violates the constitutional prohibition, uh, prohibition rather to take one's uh, religious affiliation into consideration. But she received a shocking introduction to Washington politics when she faced off with the Democratic senators last year at her confirmation hearing to uh, a seat on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. Now, she hasn't been there for very long, so that may also mean that she is less likely to be the uh, selected individual. Barrett's response was measured but on point. If you're asking whether I take my Catholic faith seriously, I do, though I would stress that my personal church affiliation or my religious beliefs would not bear on the uh, discharge of my duties as a judge. It is the 46-year-old's perceived views on the intersection of faith and the law that have drawn praise from conservatives and concern among progressives. She told the 2006 Notre Dame Law School graduating class, your legal career is but a means to an end, and that end building the kingdom of God. If you can keep in your mind that your fundamental purpose in life is not to be a lawyer, but to know, love, and serve God, you truly will be 
uh, a different kind of lawyer. Now, you got to love somebody who uh, has that as her core values. Well, the, ret- the rhetoric matches that of her mentor, Scalia, for whom she clerked in 1998. She recalled he was a tough but fair boss. In these conferences where you debate the merits of a case, you had to be on your feet. She said, know your stuff inside and out. You had to be articulate. Like the late Justice, Barrett has a large family. She has uh, is rather the mother of seven children. She has uh, talked about the challenges of juggling a busy home life with a career as a law school professor, but it was her successful political audition uh, to serve as a judge that, sources say, impressed the White House. Much of the focus was on abortion rights. Senator Richard, Richard Blumenthal asked her, and you have no personal beliefs as to whether Roe was correctly decided. Barrett's response on Roe versus Wade landmark ruling, I'm sure every nominee before you would have a personal belief about that precedent and many others, but all nominees are united in their belief that what they think about a precedent should not bear on how they will decide cases. She was a more pragmatic to years ago, just days before the president's uh, presidential election, about the chances that Roe versus Wade would be um, overturned in coming years, saying, I don't think the core case, Roe holding that women have a right to abortion, I don't think that will change. But I think the question of whether people can get late-term abortions, how many restrictions can be put on clinics, I don't think that will, uh, will change. Then there's Brett Kavanaugh. A steady insider, he's uh, described. He's also in D.C. because he serves on the circuit court there. So some speculate uh, his the convenience of his location might uh, tell us something about the president's choice. The federal appeals court uh, in Washington is seen as a professional stepping stone to the Supreme Court. Three current justices, Roberts, Ginsburg and uh, Thomas, served on that bench before joining the high court, as did Scalia. Now Judge Brett Kavanaugh is poised to make Uh, That same leap, though, if history is a guide, he could face an especially tough Senate confirmation. It is the uh, image that uh, may cement or sink the Supreme Court aspiration of Kavanaugh. His elevations, rather, to the uh, federal appeals court was celebrated with the Rose Garden swearing in by fellow Catholic who's now retiring from the bench, Justice Anthony Kennedy, for whom Kavanaugh served as a law clerk in 1993. Front and center, his former boss, President George W. Bush, the man who nominated him, saying, I chose Brett because of the force of his mind, the breadth of his experience, and the strength of his character. The former uh, loyal aide to Bush served as a White House lawyer and staff secretary. As an aide, Kavanaugh traveled to top D.C. legal and political circles. He earned the confidence of power uh, players like Karl Rove. His uh, detractors this week began circulating a photo of Rove with his uh, arms around Kavanaugh to highlight the close Bush ties, which some conservatives see as a concern. And concern from the left, Kavanaugh's judicial nomination came after uh, two years of contentious delay tactics by Democrats who claimed Kavanaugh was overly partisan. Senator Chuck Schumer was um, unsparing. You could not think of another nomination, given Mr. Kavanaugh's record, more uh, designed to divide us. This nomination appears to be judicial payment for political services rendered. Now, for Chuck Schumer to suggest that this individual would further divide us is a bit disingenuous in that before any nominee was actually named, he has uh, stated quite emphatically his opposition to any name that uh, President Trump might utter. Well, sources said at the time that they believed opposition from the left was fueled by concerns that Kavanaugh could one day 
have a seat on the Supreme Court. I consider myself a Republican. I am a supporter of President Bush, Kavanaugh said in 2004 in a hearing. Uh, Those uh, close ties may now create concern from the current president, given Trump's past rhetorical run-ins with the Bushes. So there is that possibility. As for Kavanaugh, he brings a a stellar resume, law school at Yale, a stint to the top deputy to special prosecutor Ken Starr's probe of Bill Clinton that led to the president's impeachment. On the bench, the 53-year-old has been a reliable conservative on his uh, court, reigning in dozens of administrative decisions of the Obama White House. But conservatives are at odds over whether in 2015, a ruling on Obamacare signal his um, implicit support of the law. And there's debate as to whether Kavanaugh would uh, limit access to abortion since he has never directly confronted the issue as a judge and hasn't said publicly whether he would overturn Roe versus Wade. But just days ago, he uh, dissented in the appeals court decision that allowed um, uh, undocumented pregnant teen to get an abortion. And despite his solid conservative credentials, there's some concern among Trump supporters who fear that Kavanaugh is too much the D.C. insider, having been born, raised and thriving in Washington's swamp. Solidifying his insider status, Kavanaugh married President Bush's personal secretary, the former Ashley Estes. Uh, And then finally, there is Raymond Kethledge, uh, the loner, as he's described. Justice Anthony Kennedy once told Fox News, there's a loneliness to the job of sitting on the bench, the work consisting mostly of reading and writing by yourself in chambers. Well, a top finalist to to fill Kennedy's seat has taken that uh, to heart. Judge Raymond Kethledge co-authored a book last year called Lead Yourself First, Inspiring Leadership Through Solitude. In it, um, uh, the 51-year-old said, a leader who silences the den not only around her mind but inside it uh, can then uh, hear the delicate voice of intuition, which may have already made connections with her conscience, uh, her conscious mind rather, has not. And a leader who is aware of his weakness can guard against them. Well, Keflitch says he enjoys uh, working uh, in his northern Michigan cabin by himself and without and internet uh, connection. Nevertheless, Kethledge has uh, maintained strong ties to the conservative legal movement. He was a Kennedy law clerk in 97, later worked as chief counsel for Senator uh, Spencer uh, Abram, a Republican out of Michigan. And after starting his own small law firm, the president tapped him for a seat on the sixth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals, where unlike other high-profile nominees, he faced little attention and little opposition. On the bench, his conservative record has been solid, but absent any big blockbuster cases. He's ruled to restrict unions collecting dues from its public sector uh, members, ruled in favor of the Tea Party, which uh, claimed political bias by the IRS, and ruled the police do not need a warrant to search a suspect's cell phone history record. The Supreme Court overturned that decision two weeks ago. Off the bench, he enjoys hunting and fishing. His supporters compare him favorably to Justice Neil Gorsuch, also an avid outdoorsman. One of these names will be uttered presumably by the president, Uh, later this evening to be his nominee to uh, take the position vacated uh, at the end of this month by Justice Anthony Kennedy. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We are back 38 minutes after 4 o'clock is the time. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. James Blend is engineering and producing. Also, at the end of this segment, we're going to give away our family four-pack of tickets to uh, see the Portland Pickles at Walker Stadium. And by the way, that applies to any game during this season. So that's coming up as well. We're also looking forward in the five o'clock hour to a conversation with Bruce Riley Ashford, author of Letters to an American Christian. More on that next hour. 
Well, federal judges have become increasingly powerful, much more so than America's founders had intended. For our system of government to work as designed and to produce the liberty it promises, presidents have to appoint the right kind of judges. Well, President Trump's determination to do that is uh, confirmed by the dogged opposition to his judicial nominees by Senate Democrats and their uh, grassroots allies. The problem they're causing is significant. Today, 142 seats on life-tenured federal courts, almost one-sixth of all such positions sit vacant. That's almost 17 percent of the entire judiciary. Well, the judiciary's administrative office also identifies a category of vacancies called judicial emergencies, meaning they've been open so long and put such pressure on caseloads of other judges as to constitute an emergency that they uh, be filled. Well, Senate Democrats once said 68 overall vacancies with 35 judicial emergency vacancies constituted a crisis. But that was when a Democrat was president. But the problem gets worse. We know of another 32 vacancies that will occur soon, which would leave us uh, short um, more than 20 percent of the judiciary. Now, since the Constitution creates a role for both the president and the Senate in the process of appointing and confirming judges, it's important to know how much progress they're making. Well, the president has nominated 134 men and women to the bench in the last 18 months, significantly more than any of his predecessors of either party. Senator Charles Grassley, the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, has held hearings on 97 of those under the previous six presidents, three Democrats and three Republicans. An average of 62 nominees had received a hearing at this point. Grassley is more than 50 percent ahead of that pace. And although the Judiciary Committee uh, majority controls the pace of the hearings, things still can bog down on the Senate floor. The minority party no longer can use the filibuster to prevent final confirmation votes altogether, but it can delay those final votes as long as possible. Well, one tactic is to force the Senate to take multiple votes on each nomination. It takes the same number of votes to end debate as it does to confirm a nominee now. So the only reason for multiple votes is to drag out the process. Senate Democrats have forced the Senate to take these unnecessary votes to end debate on 40 of Trump's judicial nominations. Well, that compares to two votes at this point for the previous 12 new presidents uh, combined. It's not that these uh, votes... um, to end debate mean Democratic um, Democrats rather really want the debate more than one third of the time. No more than five senators vote to have any debates at all. Their indiscriminate demand for those unnecessary votes has dragged in nominees who were initially chosen by President Barack Obama and even those who have no opposition at all. In fact, more than half of these votes have been uh, nominees who later received at least 75 votes for confirmation. Well, the results of this uh, campaign is that the Senate has so far confirmed 42 of Trump's judicial nominees. As a percentage of the judiciary, this is more than 30 percent behind the average pace of all presidents from Jimmy Carter right up to Obama. Now, the president is nominating judges at a robust rate and Republicans who run the Judiciary Committee are moving those nominees along. But Democrat obstruction tactics are holding confirmations back. Judicial vacancies are more than 30 percent higher than when Trump took office. The judge Judges who are faithfully serving and the American people who look to the courts to handle civil and criminal cases deserve better. And again, among those are uh, some judges who were nominated, uh, presented under the previous administration. Well, President Trump has already made a major unprecedented impact in getting NATO allies to spend more on their own defense. U.S. 
uh, NATO Ambassador Kay Bailey Hutchinson has uh, reported. I've worked for three presidents, all of whom have said the same thing, Hutchinson said. Now, I think for the first time, we're really seeing the Europeans start going in the same direction. Every ally is now increasing defense spending. We've had the largest increase in defense spending since the Cold War. Now, what that means is the United States is uh, demanding that these uh, European allies pay what they have committed to paying, and the United States is no longer going to carry the bulk of that burden. Trump departs on Tuesday on a four-nation tour and uh, simmering disputes over trade and military spending with fellow Western democracies and speculation about whether he'll rebuke or embrace Russian Vladimir Putin are looming. Trump needs the uh, Russian leader uh, in Hel- leaders rather in Helsinki as the finale of the trip with the earlier stops in Belgium, England and Scotland. After meeting in Brussels uh, with NATO leaders who he has long pressured to spend more of their uh, more on their own defense rather, he'll travel to the United Kingdom. He's making an impact on the Europeans, including German Chancellor Angela Merkel, have have said that we need to do more. We are going to do more. It's the right thing to do, Hutchinson said. Uh, he's making an impact, and the Europeans, including Chancellor Merkel, have spoken up. The U.S. NATO ambassador has some harsh words for Russia, saying their invasion of Crimea was illegal. In June, President Trump said that we're going to have to see whether the U.S. would ultimately recognize Russia's annexation of Crimea. Hutchinson also said there are signs Russia is trying to sway Turkey, where President Trump's uh, 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 President uh, Erdogan, rather, was recently reelected amid a sweeping government purge. I do like Russia is uh, trying to or do think Russia is trying to flip Turkey, she said. They're trying to flip many of our allies. They want to destabilize the strongest defense alliance in the history of the world. And that's NATO. Uh, Russia was supported Uh, Rather, was supposed to make sure Syrian leader Bashar al-Assad had no chemical weapons, Graham uh, went on to say. I don't trust the Russians to implement any agreement when it comes to the Iranians either. Graham also echoed Hutchinson's concerns about Turkey. Yes, they are an ally adrift, but it's a real um, a new chapter in Turkey's history. We need Turkey and they need us. So we'll see what happens on this trip and in particular in the meeting between the president and Vladimir Putin. Well, Washington increased tariffs uh, at 12.01 a.m. Eastern Time on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports, as Beijing said, it would be forced to make a necessary counterattack. Well, the Wall Street Journal reported that the fight uh, could last for months, if not years. Chinese President Xi Jinping instructed various levels of government to get ready for full-on trade war. The journal reported, citing Chinese officials with his tariff threats, President uh, Trump is uh, posing an unprecedented challenge to the leadership. Uh, Zhu Fang, a professor of international relations at Nanjing University, referring to the president's um, uh, decision, uh, speaking to a local paper. The Commerce Ministry also criticized Washington for trade bullying. China sees Trump threats as an attempt to hold back its economic growth, vowing to uh, match them uh, move for move, according to the Washington Post. Whether it's tough trade war or other means, the end goal is to make China subservient to the United States. Uh, the vice president of the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing told the Washington paper, for soybean producers like me, this is a direct financial hit. Well, uh, just moments after the U.S. tariff uh, announced, uh, was announced, rather, China fired back, claiming the U.S. violated World Trade Organization rules that set off the largest trade war in economic history to date, the Washington Post reported. And China came back with its own set of um, tariffs 
and the, uh, the, the battle is on. Some suggesting that the trade war has begun. A shooting war could come next. Now, that's a bit of an overstatement, it seems to me. But Harry Kazianis uh, wrote a piece on that, as well as um, the fact that uh, what could result with uh, North Korea could... Uh, be rather damaging as well. We'll continue to watch what actually happens as we move forward. I think we're we're short of that, but it is uh, important to recognize that is a future possibility. Before we go to break, I want to take a moment and to give away a family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Pickles. They're soccer, right? Isn't that right? The Pickles are soccer, baseball. Is that right? I don't know what they do. Baseball. James confirms their baseball. Portland Pickles. I remember when they were searching for a name. Anyway, we have a family four-pack of tickets to the Portland Pickles at Walker Stadium. We're going to be giving them away all week long. They're good for any home game in the 2018 season. Baseball, huh? Anyway, we want to give uh, caller number three that family four-pack of tickets, 503-786-9390. Again, that's 503-786-9390. Four tickets to the Portland Pickles. They play baseball. I've learned something today at Walker Stadium in Portland's Lentz Park. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, coming up at the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Bruce Riley Ashford. He's a theology professor and provost at a Baptist uh, seminary, rather. His book is titled Letters to an American Christian. We'll talk with him about that in our next hour. Well, President Trump suggested today that China could be exerting negative pressure on North Korea to stray from the denuclearization deal signed last month and trade tensions between the U.S. and Beijing. President expressed confidence that North Korean dictator Kim Jong-un will honor the informal deal despite tense talks with Secretary of State Mike Pompeo over the weekend. I have confidence that Kim Jong-un will honor the contract we signed and not exactly a contract anyway. And even more importantly, our handshake. We agreed to the denuclearization of North Korea, Trump tweeted. China, on the other hand, may be exerting negative pressure on a deal because of the posture on Chinese trade Hope not. Well, it wasn't exactly a deal, and none of the details of uh, the so-called agreement uh, were pinned out. Um, But nonetheless, the president's tweet comes days after the administration increased tariffs on $34 billion worth of Chinese imports as Beijing said it would be forced to make a necessary counterattack. Well, Chinese President Xi instructed various levels of government to get ready for a full-on trade war. China is expected to hit back against the Trump administration's 25% tax on those Chinese goods with uh, taxes to uh, on all equal uh, on rather an equal amount of American products, including soybeans, lobster, sport utility vehicles, and whiskey. But according to the journal, China uh, had not yet outlined exact targets. But the president's confidence in North Korea comes after the rogue regime over the weekend accused the U.S. of undermining the spirit of last month's summit between the president and Kim in Singapore calling talks with Pompeo regrettable. We had expected that the United States side would offer constructive measures that would help build trust based on the spirit of the leaders summit. We were also uh, thinking about providing reciprocal measures. Pyongyang's foreign ministry said in a statement to the Associated Press. However, the attitude and stance of the United States showed in the first high level meeting between 
the uh, countries was no doubt regrettable. Well, North Korea, that's a quote, by the way. North Korea then accused the United States of making gangster-like demands regarding denuclearization, which tells you a lot about what was actually accomplished earlier. Pompeo, though, reaffirmed the U.S. goal to complete and verifiable denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula and said that his talks with the rogue regime were conducted in good faith. If those requests were gangster-like, Pompeo said during a press conference in Tokyo, then the world is a gangster because there was a unanimous decision by the U.N. Security Council about what needs to be achieved. Pompeo said that sanctions will remain in place against North Korea and be enforced with great vigor. The Associated Press reported this week that the U.S. Army is quietly discharging immigrant recruits. It sounded quite awful, but it was more misleading than anything else. The report stated initially that the Army has moved in recent weeks to discharge immigrant recruits and reservists who enlisted through a program that promised them a path to citizenship. Some of these service members say that they weren't told why they were being discharged. Others say the Army told them they'd been labeled as security risks because they have relatives abroad or because their background check were pending. Well, the intended takeaway was that the president and his immigration hardliners have gone so far as to target even immigrants who have joined the U.S. Armed Forces via the military accessions vital to the National Interest Program, or MAVNI. But it doesn't appear to be that cut and dried. The AP report leaves out an explanation of why and what's actually happening. Well, first, it's a full seven paragraphs before the reader is informed that the AP article is about applicants who've only enlisted but never even started basic training. It's a bit of a stretch to use the word discharge for people who have uh, actually uh, have only actually applied and then failed the prerequisite background check. You can't be fired from a job for which you were not hired. Second, it's unclear just how many of these MAVNI applicants have been given the boot. The AP claims that at least 40 cases, but considering that more than 10,000 non-citizens joined or signed contracts between 2009 and 2017, the number 40 suggests that may yet not be a plot to target immigrant recruits. Third, there's the fact that the MAVNI program, and again, uh, that stands for the uh, Military Accessions Vital to the National Interest Program, Uh, Again, it's uh, the fact that the uh, program was effectively shut down in 2016 over security concerns. All new recruits, uh, recruitment rather, was halted, which put a select group of these applicants in a curious bureaucratic limbo, according to Military.com's Richard Sisk. So in the broader context, that may uh, at least make a little more sense. The beginning of the end of MAVNI uh, came in the form of a September 2016 memo to the the services secretary from Peter Levine, then the acting undersecretary for personal personnel rather and readiness. uh, He reported back in April, along with halting new recruitment, the program administers administrators also updated its background check criteria, making security much tougher for Uh, The more than 300 applicants stuck in limbo. Pentagon spokespeople said the program was effectively allowed to end last October. That's in 2017 when tighter screening procedures were put in place for the program recruits who had already signed up. Well, MAVNI applicants have roughly 1,095 days to get their background checks completed before the agreement expires. If the clock runs out or if uh, if they fail the enhanced background checks, they're packed uh, their packet is rejected. As to whether the 40 referenced in the AP 
um, article uh, fall into the expiration category or failed background check category, the report doesn't say. This really is the biggest problem. As readers, we're told something is wrong, but we're never really given the full context, which is always important. We're not told whether this is a new policy implemented by the current administration or whether the rejections are the consequence of the 2016 MAVNI security enhancements. For what it's worth, the Pentagon spokesperson said on Friday last that the AP has mischaracterized its handling of the recruits, adding further that there has been no change in policy at all. There is this Washington Post report from June 2017, which claims the Pentagon was considering a plan to cancel enlistment contracts for a thousand foreign-born recruits without legal immigration status, knowingly exposing them to deportation. But the AP can't lean on the Post's reporting to excuse its own muddling of the coverage, which apparently they did. Neither the AP nor a spokesperson for the U.S. Army responded to the Washington Examiner's questions for comment and clarification. So, again, context is everything. We're going to take a quick break for news and traffic at the top of the hour. When we come back, we'll talk with Bruce Riley Ashford, a theology professor. We're also anticipating the president who will take to the mic sometime around 6 o'clock p.m. Pacific time to announce his next pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Of course, we're anticipating the announcement to be made at 6 o'clock p.m. our time by the President of the United States, his next Supreme Court pick. We'll uh, talk a little bit more about that later in today's program. Well, how does Christian faith impact American citizenship? And what does ancient biblical truth have to do with modern political debate? Well, in his newest book, Letters to an American Christian, my next guest, theologian and author Bruce Riley Ashford, he explores the deep connection between Christian faith and politics. Now, some of you might wonder, is there a connection? Well, Christianity, he argues, and quite persuasively, has an inescapable influence on a believer's political and public life and speaks decisively to many of the issues debated in the public square today. Letters to an American Christian is intended to give readers a clearer understanding of how heavenly citizenship shapes our citizenship here on earth. And according to my guests, he relegates the uh, transformative nature of Christian faith to certain realms of our life, or rather, if we were to do so, it's, um, it's not only impossible, it ignores the mandate to engage with culture, of which politics is a significant part. Well, this is a very timely subject, and I'm looking forward uh, to talking with uh, Bruce Riley Ashford about that. Well, he is a provost, dean of faculty, and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of Every Square Inch, and in Introduction to Cultural Engagement for Christians, and co-author of One Nation Under God, A Christian Hope for American Politics, and I Am Going. In his teaching, he uh, works to help students understand how the gospel should shape the totality of a person's life, and how the gospel is relevant to every dimension of society and culture. His primary academic interest is public theology, followed by secondary focuses in theology of mission, contemporary theology, theological method, and philosophy of education. He joins us today once again to talk about his latest book, which, as I mentioned, is very timely, Letters to an American Christian. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm I'm really delighted to have you. Georgine, thank you so much. It's great to be on the show. Well, this has always been a timely subject, but it seems that with things as they're shaping up today, it seems perhaps more relevant than we might have imagined uh, in the past. Now, one of the questions I want to address before we get into how uh, and why politics matter for the believer is the question of whether or not uh, Christians should engage in politics at all, or if it's possible 
uh, to separate oneself altogether? Yeah, so great, great question. And uh, the, the first thing that I'll say is it's not even possible to separate religion and politics. And then I'm going to go on to talk about why I think it's good to be appropriately involved. So, you know, a lot of people, when they define religion, you know, just define it as the private worship of a supernatural deity. And if that's all it is, and if it's only that, then, you know, maybe you can hide it in public. Bible takes a different approach and says if you want to find somebody's religion, <clears throat> find their God, whatever it is they make ultimate. And uh, when you find whatever it is they've made, made ultimate, then that thing is going to inevitably affect all of their life, including their public life. Now, that might be the God of Jesus Christ, the Allah of Muhammad, or it might be sex or money or power. But whatever it is that we've made ultimate, uh, that we embrace in a heartfelt manner, whatever we value the most, of course it's going to radiate out, right? It's going to radiate out mm -hmm. into, into everything um, that we do. So, you know, we can't separate the two. I do think we can separate church and state. We just can't separate religion and politics. But then your next question is, uh, well, if they can't be separated, then how should we view it? Is politics, you know, uh, just something dirty? We ought to be as little involved as possible. So, you know, I think I'd say something like this, that <clears throat> I think God, when we look at Genesis chapter 1, and we're told that God created different kinds of animals. I think when we look at history, when we look at the rest of the Bible, we see that he created different kinds of culture, art, science, education, politics. And all of these realms, I think, are good in and of themselves. God created them. He made them. He wants them to exist. All of them are going to be twisted. This is important. Twisted toward wrong ends. Now, you talk about this on your show in a hundred different ways all the time. Any sort of realm of culture that we're in, you were a little while ago just talking about family and, and uh, dads and daughters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so in any realm of life, things are going to be twisted by sin. And our role as Christians, and it's a great honor, is to be able to enter in these different realms and try to help untwist what's been twisted. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Absolutely. One other thing I wanted to ask you to comment on before we move forward is the notion of what politics is. I think for some, we imagine that politics means I have to be affiliated to and give my undying loyalty to a particular political party. And the, the um, machine of politics is uh, unpleasant to many. So we imagine that because I don't want to be engaged in politics as their practice today, therefore I can exempt myself from, from uh, political engagement at all. What, what does it look like when we're engaged politically? What does it, or what are the essentials and what yeah. can we jettison? Yeah. So a broad definition of the term politics would be something like this, just uh, <clears throat> the attempt to persuade other people in society on matters of public significance, right? And in that sense, in that broad sense, coffee shop conversations are political, even if they're not about political parties, even if they're just about important issues in society, coffee shop conversations, Facebook exchanges, going to the voting booth. All of these things, uh, you know, when we're talking about significant matters, whether it's gender and sexuality or um, what, what is the nature of justice, how do we apply our view on justice to immigration? How do we apply it to abortion? You know, any different topic. When we engage and do so from a Christian perspective, we're being political, but in, in a good sense of the word, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. You're, and, and I want to say it's absolutely right. This does not mean that we have to identify ourselves with a major political party. Now, I right now do identify loosely and tentatively with a major political party, and I think it's okay and sometimes wise. But you're right. 
honoring the Lord in the political realm does not involve allegiance to a party. It doesn't mean you have to be involved in national politics. I think it just means that we have to be faithful with our approach to public life. And we have a very unique opportunity here in the United States uh, in that we have the potential to influence public policy in ways that other parts of the world could only dream of. Oh, yeah, you're exactly right. So in in my book, Letters to an American Christian, which, by the way, uh, even though I'm a professor, this is not an academic book. This is written for everyday Americans. I wrote it to be read at the beach or in an easy chair. Brief letters to a Christian. Uh, Basically, in this book, I argue that uh, we're in a really unique situation, a 21st century democratic republic, where the constitution of our country expects us to be involved in helping shape our country toward right ends and right goals. And I just don't think it's right for us to sort of set that aside and not appreciate that fact. And different people can be engaged in different ways, each person in the way that, that the Lord has given them. But I don't think we can just push that calling away completely. At least most of us can't. Yeah, I would agree. And I would also agree with the fact that this is a book for everybody. Uh, those of us are concerned about living out our faith in a way that's honoring to, to Christ and fulfilling the call that all of us have uh, in a way that is honoring to him is what this book really helps us uh, think through. We're talking about letters to an American Christian, and you chose to to use a format that's somewhat unusual in that you are corresponding with an imaginary, if you will, uh, individual to discuss these issues, which makes it eminently approachable and readable. Now, the book is uh, divided into three sections. The first, a Christian worldview of politics and public life. The second, a Christian view on hot button issues that helps us to think through some of the challenges we face today. And then finally, a Christian hope for American politics. And I love the use of the word hope because I think many of us are very discouraged right now with the lack of civility uh, that we're witnessing. Uh, Why did you choose the format of writing to an anonymous character uh, in helping Christians to think through um, how they're going to navigate in our political environment? Yeah, so when I, when I co-wrote uh, One Nation Under God two and a half years ago, mm-hmm. that book was released right before the election cycle, and little did we know how crazy uh, the next uh, two years would be. And the feedback that I got from the book is that people who had master's degrees loved it, but that everyone else would like me to write a book that everyday Americans could really embrace. And so I wrote this book in the form of letters because it allows me to be personal. I mean, we can make some jokes and some cultural references that are fun, we can persuade, and it's, the chapters are conversational. Yes. And the reason is this. I want us as everyday Americans to be able to engage in conversations with real people, not lobbing bombs at people on the other side of the political aisle because our favorite television show, you know, talk show host, uh, you know, told us to. I want us to be able to enter into public conversations on important issues, even if and especially if the other person disagrees with us, even if and especially if they're not treating us fairly. They're misrepresenting our view. They don't understand our view. Maybe they're insulting us. I want us to be able to enter in and to have something to say that's faithful to the Christian perspective and to be able to persuade. I think we've lost the art of Christian persuasion. Mm -hmm. We need to regain it. Absolutely. And while this is a very contentious season, I see it as an opportunity that God has given us to distinguish ourselves in the way we approach these, uh, these issues uh, that says something to the world about what's possible, particularly in Christ. That's exactly right. And you know, the book that I've written, I think is very similar to your show. You, You tell stories on your show, you engage your listener, you talk to them in a warm, in a personable manner. That's what I do in the book, and that's what we've got to do. 
I even think there's a way of doing this in Facebook exchanges. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Facebook political conversations are wickedly difficult. But if they're happening, there is a way to step in on those conversations and to speak a good word into a bad situation. Absolutely. To be truthful and gracious. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking about the book Letters to an American Christian. It's a book written for you and I so that we can think through what what does our faith bring to the table in the public square when we're talking about political issues that involves essentially everything. My guest is Bruce Riley Ashford. We'll be back in just a few moments. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're continuing our conversation with Bruce Riley Ashford. He is a provost, dean of faculty, and professor of theology and culture at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's the author of several books, and today we're talking about his latest, which is simply titled Letters to an American Christian. Now, the book is written in uh, such a way that all of us can read it and really glean from it uh, the biblical principles that will that should inform our approach to politics, which is essentially our engagement in uh, virtually every area. Uh, He writes with both compassion and conviction, and he unpacks some complex questions at the heart of the nation's political and social discord. Let's begin by talking about some of the uh, the challenges we face as believers as we're thinking about our role in uh, in representing Christ in the public square. Let's talk a bit about the relationship between church and state. Many are suggesting, and I think without evidence, that there is no role for uh, the expression of faith in the public square and that there has to be an absolute separation between the two. Uh, as believers, how should we approach and think about this issue of the relationship between church and state? Yeah, great question. So, you know, often the question of religion and politics gets... Um, sort of conflated with the question of church and state. So as I see it, religion and politics cannot and should not be separated, but church and state can and should. And here's what I mean. So, you know, God created a church as an institution, a local church as an institution, and gave it some very specific things that it ought to do. Preach the word, sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, greet one another, disciple each other in the Lord, you know, have fellowship and this sort of thing. And it's a perversion of a local church's task to make itself into a public policy center, issuing policy decrees on the sewage referendum, you know, from the pulpit. That's just not what the church is intended to do. Um, We don't want any denominations, Southern Baptists, Roman Catholics, Presbyterians, Anglicans, Methodists. We don't want them controlling uh, the nation. They're neither competent nor called to do it, right? On the other hand, God has created government to bring justice to the various individuals and communities under its purview. And the government has a very specific set of tasks. It protects us from people who had come against us. It, it works to ensure justice in the different spheres of culture that, for example, in the business realm, you don't have powerful businesses um, doing dirty things toward less powerful businesses and then getting away with it. So it's an umpire of sorts. But it's a perversion of the government's task to tell a church who it can hire as a pastor, what doctrine it can teach, and then whether or not it should get a tax exemption based upon its doctrine. And so basically I want you, we want the church and the state as institutions to swim in their own lanes. But when the church disperses on Sunday mornings and goes throughout the church, uh, throughout the, the rest of the week, you know, uh, Monday through Saturday, that's where the church has influence in the political realm. It's discipled its people. It's taught us and nursed our political identity and taught us that Jesus is Lord and Caesar is not. 
and uh, that Jesus, as Lord, should shape us, should shape our desires, to shape how we see justice, to shape the way we would interact with people publicly. And in that way, the church uh, shapes politics. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I love your chapter in this section where you deal with this. Um, it's uh, titled, as Chapter 4, Christianity is Not Our Side Hustle. What does Christianity have to do with culture? And I think if we abdicate uh, our responsibility and the role that we are called to play in culture, then we're going to see the kind of decline that most of us uh, fret about today as we observe the culture and the direction that it's taking. Yeah, you know, if the Lord created different kinds of culture, he created a world that would eventually have arts and science and education and politics, in each of those spheres, if we could use a spatial analogy, if each of those is like a circle or a sphere, then each of those spheres has a center and a circumference. So it has a center or a reason for being, and the reason for being for each sphere is different from all other spheres. So there's a reason for being, but there's also a circumference or a limit to each sphere's jurisdiction. I think our job as Christians, whether we're in the arts or education or science or business or sports or the communications um, industry, if you're a radio host, in any of these, we're supposed to be asking uh, three questions. Number one, what would God want from this kind of an activity? What's his design for it? Number two, has it been twisted by sin and idolatry? Number three, how can I help untwist what's been twisted? Yeah, that's a a great way to approach uh, the subject. We're talking about the book Letters to an American Christian. My guest is Bruce Riley uh, Ashford, and it's a book that deals uh, with how we as Christians ought to engage uh, the culture in our time. Now, in the second part of your book, you deal with uh, Christian view on hot button issues, and perhaps the one at the top of that list has to do with uh, sex and gender, gender dysphoria, transgenderism, and LGBTQ issues. And many are are overwhelmed by the prospect of, of discussing a biblical worldview in these areas. But you help us think through how should I approach these issues from uh, a Christian perspective in the public square. Talk a bit about um, your letter to a, a Christian that deals with these uh, challenging issues. Yeah. yeah, so, you know, with issues like this, they are very emotionally charged. And one of the reasons they're emotionally charged towards Christians is because often there's a, uh, you know, folks who are not Christians may be aware of our conclusion about transgenderism, but they're not aware of, really aware of our motivations, and they don't really understand why we come to our conclusions or what our mo- motivations are. So I think we do need to speak, we need to be careful. And here's what I'd say. I think we need to separate gender dysphoria from transgenderism as an ideology. Gender dysphoria is a condition where a person experiences confusion about whether their gender, or how they act, match, matches their physical sex, their biological sex. Sex and gender should go together. Uh, in God's design, but off, sex is something that was given to you, and gender is what you do with it. And a lot of people are confused, and for various reasons. And I think our, our toward people who are confused about their gender, we want to love them, we want to embrace them, and we want to um, employ therapies that help restore them toward their biological sex, right? So mm-hmm. take the art restoration view. God made each person as a, as a piece of art. But each of us as a piece of art are also corrupted a little bit. The artwork has gotten messed up because of sin. And we're trying to restore the piece of art, not make it into a different type of art. But then on the other hand, we have transgenderism. And transgenderism is very different. It's an ideology. And it is, um, and that I want to reject out of hand. Now, there are people who hold the ideology, and I want to reject them. But transgenderism is an ideological agenda 
and it is causing serious problems. Um, many proponents of this ideology are encouraging young children before they've even hit puberty or shortly after puberty to take hormone therapies, to get surgeries, and this dangerous and psychologically and even physically dangerous on many different levels. And so we want to love those who experience gender dysphoria, and I think we want to make good, reasonable, persuasive arguments against transgender ideology. Now, that's only one of the several issues that you deal with in uh, the book, Letters to an American Christian, which, as we mentioned earlier, uh, is is eminently readable and is written for the average person who really wants to live out their faith, even in the public square, as it relates to uh, to politics. You deal with free speech, uh, American nationalism, race relations and reconciliation, fake news and misinformation, immigration. And uh, one of the issues that is emerging is the president uh, later this evening, for example, is going to announce the next Supreme Court nominee. The Senate will have the role of, of advice and consent, but abortion and reproductive rights uh, has re- moved to the uh, fore uh, once again. Talk a bit about a uh, Christian approach in your letter to an, an American Christian uh, to abortion and reproductive rights. Absolutely. You know, so um, on the matter of abortion, many, uh, most, maybe all Bible-believing Christians, many or most will say Bible-believing Christians have begun to come to the realization that abortion is wrong. Okay, and so we've got a lot of agreement on that, but how do we enter into the public square and persuade? I want to mention two different ways. One way that we can persuade is by using scriptural reasoning, biblical reasoning, and that's always, there's never anything wrong with that, and if we can go ahead and put all of our cards on the table, and if the other person will let us, that's a good approach, and so I'll start with that, and in that approach, we teach them that the cosmic king of the universe, God, created us in his image and likeness that we have inherent value and dignity, that we don't have a right to take an innocent life ever. So we have dignity, and it's that dignity, God-given dignity, that allows us to fight for the dignity of persons of color in America, uh, of immigrants who may be treating, be being treated badly, or of uh, uh, women who might be treat, treated badly. And so there's the image of God. There's also the fact that Christ shed his blood for all humans, and if God was willing to go to the cross for them, including unborn babies, and we ought to be willing to protect our lives. We want to welcome them in law, uh, protect them in law, and welcome them in life. But there's another way of arguing, too, Georgina. I think this is a really important one, and this is where we use arguments that are not maybe specifically Christian, that other people, that, that might serve as common ground for other people. When it comes to abortion, I think we can show sociologically that abortion is awful for society. What, what do we have? A couple? Do we have a couple minutes left? Uh, yes, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. So I think we can show not only that abortion is bad for the baby and that a baby has less protection in America than an endangered species of bird, but abortion is also, it's bad for women because it teaches men that they can be sexual predators and they can be sexually irresponsible. They will not have to to, uh, put in any hard work to take care of a baby that they made because they can kill it. Um, it, it's, it's, uh, It's harmful to marriages and families. It's harmful to justice and equality. Here's what it says, and this is very ironic. In the 1960s, just as we had turned the corner on saying, listen, justice and equality for all, and you can't bracket out an entire group of people, black Americans, and say that they won't be guaranteed justice and equality. Just after we turned the corner in 1973, we flipped and said, well, there is an entire class of human beings, babies, and we will not guarantee justice and equality for them. And I think there was a, a racist 
actually motivation for many people on that. Yes. You know, that you could actually kill black babies if you wanted to, and they got what they wanted. And then finally, the last couple of things is uh, that um, what we teach society at large in America when we legalize abortion is that it is okay to dismiss an entire category of humans, and number two, that it's okay to use lethal violence to solve our problems. And so when we, if we can engage in a kind manner making these points, in a manner where we're not just trying to score a victory or slap back at somebody, if we can really kind of persuade them and say, listen, this is bad for society, then I think that's a second approach we can make. So there's a biblical approach and then more of a um, one that's not as explicitly Christian. Well, we're talking about the book Letters to an American Christian. My guest, Bruce Riley Ashford. This is just a small example of the rich uh, reading and uh, examples and information you'll find in the book to help us navigate our way through a political climate that can be very distasteful. And yet God has given us a tremendous opportunity to influence uh, the culture. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Georgine. It's been a joy. Thank you. Again, Bruce Riley Ashford, the author, Letters to... Uh, to an American Christian. The book is published by B&H. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're about, uh, we're actually less than 30 minutes away from the president's announcement, which is expected in the East Room, in which he is uh, going to tell us who his next uh, nominee for the U.S. Supreme Court will be. And, of course, that will be followed by the Senate's advice and consent a constitutional role in either affirming or rejecting that nominee. But the announcement will be made today, even though the campaign to oppose that individual, we know not whom, has already begun. Uh, that's about 6 o'clock p.m. our time, according to uh, reports. Well, after the Supreme Court ruled the uh, that banned uh, forced union dues for public sector workers, uh, activist groups started complaining about how they were going to lose a huge source of funds. But didn't unions repeatedly claim prior to that decision that those uh, forced dues only went to collective bargaining costs? Well, the court case, Janus versus AFSCME, that's A-F-S-C-M-E, centered on the uh, practice in 22 states where public sector workers could be forced to pay a portion of the union dues, even if they didn't join the union. The court ruled 5-4 that this was a violation of free speech because it meant that government was forcing non-union workers to subsidize political advocacy, candidates and policies that they did not support. Well, throughout the debate, big public sector unions insisted that those forced dues were perfectly reasonable since non-union members also uh, benefited from union collective bargaining deals with state and local governments. It made sense for them to cover their share of those collective bargaining costs. The unions called it fair share fees. Well, none of those forced dues, unions emphatically stated, went to political causes. So there was um, no free speech violation. Well, the simple truth is... And this is how the American Federation of State, County and Municipal Employees put it. The simple truth is that no one is forced to join a union and no one is forced to pay any fees that go to political or political or rather politics or political candidates. But this week, the New York Times published a lengthy story explaining how the Janus decision will not only hit public sector unions, but will also hit hard at a vast network of groups dedicated to advancing liberal policies and candidates. Well, these groups, the Times reports, uh, got 
tens of millions of dollars from public sector unions, funding now in jeopardy because of the prospective decline in union revenue. Now, how does that make sense? Well, the giant Service Employees International Union says it cut its budget by 30 percent on the assumption that the court would rule against the unions in the Janus case. The Times says it had... um, been talking with leaders of liberal groups for two years about how to offset that loss. Well, public union money accounted for up to 15 percent of the Economic Policy Institute's budget, the story notes. EPI puts out uh, pro-union studies that the press then reports as credible research. Pro-immigration groups, Mi Familia Vota, uh, was uh, getting about $1 million a year from public unions. America Votes got $2 million in 2016. So how is it that if non, uh, rather none of the forced dues went to pay for anything other than collective bargaining. All these uh, liberal activist groups are worried about having their uh, gravy train cut off. Well, surely the loss of those fair share fees would only come out of the union's collective bargaining budget, not the massive amounts of money they spend supporting liberal groups and causes. Right? Money is, however, fungible. Unions might say that losing all that fair share money means that they'll have to shift money from other activities to cover reduced collective bargaining dollars. But that just underscores the fact that money is fungible. By uh, forcing non-union members to pay fair share fees, unions could free up substantial amounts of funds that otherwise would have been spent on collective bargaining to pay for political activism. What's more, unions had fairly wide discretion over what counted as collective bargaining for which they could directly charge non-union members. Well, a couple of years ago, the National Legal and Policy Center noted that unions, with the consent of the federal government's National Labor Relations Board, were defining collective bargaining so broadly as to include just about any activity as applicable. Well, either way, there's no question that at least some of the forced dues that public sector workers had to pay ended up funding political groups, activities, and policies that those non-union workers did not agree with. The fact that liberal groups are screaming about the loss of union money because of the Janus decision is simply more evidence that the court's ruling was exactly right. Meanwhile, the fallout from the Supreme Court's landmark ruling continues as Washington state workers filed suit to recover their lost wages from forced unionism. Several home health aides are suing Service Employees International Union Local 775 and the state to recover money deducted from Medicaid reimbursements designed to fund the care of disabled or elderly people. The state government automatically sent more than 3% of the provider's payment to the union, despite the fact that workers never agreed to become members. The practice, according to the suit, violates both the U.S. and state constitutions. Plaintiffs and class members are not union members and never consented for the union or the state to withdraw union dues or dues equivalent fees from their wages. Yet the state deducted such fees for their pay, the suit says. Defendants conspired to deprive plaintiffs and class members of their First Amendment rights by deducting union fees from their wages without their clear prior affirmative consent. Well, for years, Washington state forced these providers, many of whom are caring for relatives, to pay a portion of those reimbursements to the union. The practice only stopped when the Supreme Court declared a similar policy in Illinois unconstitutional. That 2014 ruling led to the Supreme Court's June decision declaring mandatory payments to public sector unions, including SEIU, an unconstitutional violation of free speech in Janus. 
Well, the caregivers are receiving pro bono representation from the Freedom Foundation, a pro-free market think tank in the state. Foundation labor expert Maxford Nelson said the policy was exploitive and wrong on every level. Any business that tried to charge customers without their permission would have the state attorney general trying to shut them down, he told the Washington Free Beacon. We believe extracting union dues from caregivers, Medicaid checks without permission, is not only unfair, but violates caregivers' First Amendment freedoms. We'll see what happens, but um, this class action lawsuit, a response to an earlier decision by the courts and then the Janus decision of just a few days ago. And a federal judge halted enforcement of a troubling California law protecting illegal immigrants on Thursday, even as the allowed two other so-called sanctuary state provisions to remain on the books, at least for now. The mixed ruling by District Court Judge John Mendez was largely a win for Democrats in the far left state where Governor Jerry Brown has accused the Trump administration's going to war by filing the suit that led to Thursday's ruling. Mendez and appointee of President, uh, President George W. Bush making the point that you can't always determine how a judicial appointee is going to uh, rule, agreed with the Trump administration that California can no longer enforce a law prohibiting employers from allowing immigration officials on their premises unless the officials have a warrant, calling that provision a troubling restraint that places employees or rather employers in a precarious situation. He said, Mendez, the judge, said the state had overstepped its authority by impermissibly discriminating against those who choose to deal with federal authorities. The Constitution's Supremacy Clause precludes California from actively interfering with federal immigration authorities, and Mendez said the workplace provision crossed that line. But he refused to block a law requiring the state to review uh, detention facilities where immigrants were held and another that prevents local law enforcement from providing release dates and personal information on jail inmates. Those laws, Mendez said, did not rise to the level of being an active impediment to federal officials, even if they indicated the state's unwillingness to voluntarily cooperate with them. In a statement, Department of Justice spokesman Devin O'Malley disagreed with that assessment. California's political uh, leadership clearly intended to obstruct federal immigration authorities in their state, O'Malley said, even as he called the judge's limited injunction a major victory for private employers in California who are no longer prevented from cooperating with legitimate enforcement of our nation's immigration laws. O'Malley added that while we are disappointed that California's other laws designed to protect criminal aliens were not yet halted, the Justice Department will continue to seek out and fight unjust policies that threaten public safety. This uh, is basically going to war against the state of California, the engine of America's economy, uh, Governor Brown said. Well, the U.S. government sued the state in March as part of a broader effort to crack down on sanctuary jurisdiction. Thursday's decision came on a on the request, rather, by an administration for a preliminary injunction to immediately halt enforcement of all three sanctuary state laws. It's not a final ruling on the legality of the California laws, but in allowing the two laws to remain, Mendez signaled that he would ultimately uphold them. We're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we return, we will uh, wrap things up and also remind you that, um, in fact, the president will be announcing shortly Uh, His pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Of course, everyone is waiting with bated breath 
Okay, I don't have any idea what bated breath is. It does not sound pleasant. But nonetheless, people are impatiently waiting for the president to announce his pick for the U.S. Supreme Court. The seat that has uh, been vacated by Justice Kennedy will be filled by a nominee presented by President Trump. Now, the role of the Senate is advice and consent. Uh, They will give an up and down vote as to whether or not this individual is acceptable. It's been narrowed down to four individuals we've heard uh, throughout the, uh, the weekend. And in a few moments, the president is going to announce which among those four, assuming that he stuck within that uh, list, uh, he is going to bring forward as the next nominee. Now, there has been a judicial conference at the U.S. Supreme Court building today. And one of those nominees, Mr. Kavanaugh, was among those attending the event. Now, lots of people are speculating because he's been seen in a black limousine earlier today in and around that area, whether or not he's in and around the area for the purpose of being announced as the next Supreme Court nominee. But again, he is here or there rather because of the judicial conference. The other three, we don't know if they're anywhere in the vicinity. So there's a lot of speculation about what that might mean. But speculation will end momentarily when the president, uh, we're told 6 o'clock p.m. our time, it could be a little later, could it be a little earlier, is going to take to the mic to announce uh, his Supreme Court court pick. There's been a lot of discussion as to whether or not this is going to um, uh, up in the balance, in quotes, of the court uh, in that Justice Kennedy was sort of a swing vote. Sometimes he voted with the left, sometimes to the right. He was not a reliable conservative, in other words. And those on the left didn't particularly like Kennedy until or unless he would uh, swing to a position that they agreed with. Uh, and there's been a lot of discussion as to uh, an obligation on the part of the president to replace Uh, retiring Justice Kennedy was someone who is similar to him. Now, they would prefer someone much more liberal in that they are not strict constitutionalists and see the Constitution as a living, breathing document that can be interpreted according to one's perception of the times. Uh, On the other hand, there's the the view that the Constitution actually means something, that the originalists, the view of the Constitution, when a a, a statement is made, uh, it actually means what it says, and it's important what was intended at the time. Uh, So you've got those two different views, and some are suggesting the president has a political obligation to choose someone uh, who is more like Justice Kennedy than like Justice Gorsuch, for example. Well, the president is not, uh, at least constitutionally, obliged to do anything other than bring someone forward and the Senate to offer its advice and consent in either uh, confirming or rejecting a nominee. Now, back in the day when some of you were just in diapers, um, Judge um, Bork was uh, what they now refer to as was borked because of his uh, conservative views. And some are suggesting that this time around, given the... uh, political volatility of our time, um, that this is going to be uh, at least as bad or worse than the borking of Judge Bork, who, by the way, was rejected by the U.S. Senate and, of course, never took up his position on the court as nominated. Uh, So this is going to be a very volatile time. And as uh, our conversation earlier in the day with Bruce Riley Ashford, who is a theologian and professor, um, urged us to do is to consider our Christian faith and how we approach these issues. We certainly are free to be passionate about them, but all of our thinking on these political uh, issues has to be uh, taken in the context of our Christian faith and who our ultimate sovereign is. How would he have us conduct ourselves even when we're passionate about uh, issues that, uh, that confront us? So I'm hoping that we can set the example of uh, how to move forward uh, as we navigate the public square on these uh, contentious political issues. In any event, we're expecting to hear from the president momentarily on just that. And we'll provide more information tomorrow on who that pick ultimately 
uh, will be. Tomorrow on the program, we're also going to talk with Larry Moyer. His uh, book is titled A Mentor's Wisdom, Lessons I Learned from Haddon Robinson. I know many of you are either uh, mentors or are uh, looking for or have had mentors. We're going to talk about how one in particular has influenced and that that's a mentor's wisdom lessons I learned from Haddon Robinson. Again, uh, my guest, Larry Moyer. On Wednesday, Liz Diddy will be, uh, be my guest. There's sort of a funny story behind this interview. We'd actually booked an interview uh, on a different book by the same publicist or by the same um, publisher, uh, and we received all the materials in preparation, the book, the, the show sheet, and so on, the, the press kit that we get that gives us a little bit of information about the, the guest and the book. Uh, however, they somehow mixed up Liz Diddy and her book with the um, interview that we had scheduled so that the image of one book uh, was reflected on the press kit, but all the information related to another. So it's it was sort of an odd kind of... One of a kind event that uh, happened for us here, uh, but it did give us an opportunity to hear the name of Liz Diddy and her book, God's Many Voices, and with the mix up, which required a rescheduling of a guest, I uh, decided that, yeah, this is a book we'd also like to uh, include in our lineup. So we're going to talk with Liz Diddy. Her book is God's Many Voices, Learning to Listen, Expectant to Hear. And oh, don't we need to hear God's voice as we are wrestling with uh uh, the voices of our culture and perhaps those in our own head and that of the enemy uh, that would guide us in directions that are not pleasing to him. So God's many voices, learning to listen, expecting to hear Liz Diddy will be my guest on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, we'll talk with Ken Ham. I have a lot of questions for Ken Ham. His latest book is titled Gospel Reset, Salvation Made Relevant. Now, I'm not sure the gospel needs to be reset or that the uh, uh, salvation needs to be made relevant. It is, above all else, relevant. <laughs> and, uh, so I want to give him an opportunity to explain, because I, I have confidence he'll answer well, uh, to explain uh, why a gospel reset and why salvation uh, needs to be made relevant. Or is it that we're not presenting it in a way that's compelling in the 21st century? So Ken Ham will be my guest on Thursday. Looking forward uh, to uh, talking with him. And then on Friday, all things uh, being less tragic, um, we will lighten up and look forward to that. All right. The president will announce his Supreme Court pick shortly. We'll talk about it tomorrow. I want to thank James Blinn for engineering and producing today's program. And thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. 
With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com, salemnow.com.